Hello, creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Ghost Watch. <laughs> let's do this. Okay. Okay, center. I'm centering. I'm centering myself. And let's Hello, everyone. go to camera two. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the BBC. My name is Ashley Darrow, and I'm the host of Horror Vanguard, the BBC's new program, uh, for some reason, that has hired an American host. I'm joined, as <laughs> always, by the world's number one cameraman and high-ranking member of the Society of Psychical Research, Dr. At The Liquid Guy. How's it going, Doctor? Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Very excited. I think this is a bold, new, non-visual direction for the BBC to be going in. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just, I, I, I remember when the studio execs reached out to me and they were like, we want you to hire the world's greatest cameraman for an audio only program. <laughs> and I just, I thought it was visionary. Um, I, I, bold choice, bold choice, but yep. Super excited to be here. Even if nobody will see the footage, but, um, <laughs> we, well, that's for the archivist to sort out in 20 years. We, are, we today are talking about something, uh, kind of fun, kind of rare. And a little bit special. Um, we are talking about a live broadcast from the British Broadcasting Corporation that first aired in 1992. Um, given that this is kind of a, bit, a slightly uh, esoteric piece of television history, uh, I'm presuming, uh, Ash, this is why, as, as that's your area of expertise, maybe you can tell me and everybody watching this bit, this. Non non visual broadcast. <laughs> what are we talking about today? What does it mean that we search for the dead? We look for them in the world of the living. We strive to contact them as we would contact each other, through sound, through heat, through light. We speak to them through our actions, through the events of our lives. We strive for communion with the dead but we can only accept a communication from beyond that conforms to how we communicate in our day-to-day -day lives. We force the dead into the frameworks of the living. Mother Jones once said, pray for the dead and fight like hell for the living. However, we are dead. Oh dear listener, if you are hearing this, and if I am here to speak it, then we are both already dead. To be born into this world is to die in it, to live, love, fight, to be bored on a rainy Sunday afternoon when all of your friends are too busy to chat. Dear listener, those are the necessary preconditions of death. We cannot die without these events. Though they may appear in different durations and intensities, they are required. We cannot die without first having lived. If you wish to communicate with the dead, all you need to do is say hello to the next person that you see and greet them you should. As the dead, we are all we have. So, you should fight like hell for the dead, not because we should abandon the living, but because we are the dead. Likewise, you should pray for the living, because they are yet to come, and by God, I want for nothing more than the way I want for them to have things better than we did. These words we speak today are tomorrow's haunting echoes from the grave. We are building our ruins, weaving our myths, 
laying out the groundwork for our own hauntings. There's a chill in the air. Can you feel it? That was the ghost of me. The ghost of you. The ghost of that long-lost friend whose fading memory graces those shadowy corners of the mind. All communication worth having is a seance connecting those that have died with those that have yet to realize it. Join our circle as we discuss Leslie Manning's Ghost Watch. Oh, that was so good. That was so good. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I can tell that you have not been feeling very well the last few days. <laughs> That one felt yes. that one felt a little more morbid than usual, but I I think it's entirely suiting for what we're talking about today. I I agree. My body is currently uh, attempting to strike a ceasefire and a truce with a particular a particularly annoying uh, cold. So we'll see how this goes, or perhaps I am I am uh, a bit late of this world, and I am already recording from beyond the grave. Uh, well. We can only hope that your uh, recovery or uh, peaceful transition into the next plane of existence comes quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but where? Yes, the follower count of my death has been greatly exaggerated. But where would you like to begin? Well, uh, so we're talking about Ghost Watch. And if you haven't seen Ghost Watch, you absolutely need to. It's currently streaming on Shudder. You can buy it on DVD. This movie is very easy to get a hold of these days. Um, it is a breath of fresh air. Um, and I might I might be saying that because I've been watching all of the Saw movies in sequence and that has eroded. Maybe maybe that's the cause of my ill health in this moment. But Ghost Watch is incredible. Um, it was it was filmed and then broadcast on the BBC as a live production that uh, had as part of it an actual live studio response a la the World War of the Worlds radio broadcast, but done about ghosts some 60 years later. Mm-hmm. And I would like to start by talking about the special effects of Ghost Watch. Then I think it's time for the next segment on the show. The fo- And what would that be? <laughs> it would be... <laughs> it would be the, the formalism zone. Zone, 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 zone. All right. So what do you think of the special effects? I, I, all right, I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna put put my cards on the table straight straight away. Okay, me and you basically have professionalized the watching of scary films. That's that's what we do for our job, <laughs> like, and we're pretty good at it. Um, I've got to say, this is a genuinely scary piece of filmmaking, and the special effects in it are incredible. Yeah, like so we were talking about this before recording and, and I don't I don't mean to come off as like one of those like machismo dudes who are like babe like horror movies don't scare me anymore. I'm just like too tough. But like it is in fact my day job to watch The Exorcist on repeat morning, noon and night. And after a while you you start to get a little used to things. Uh, Ghost Watch got me. Like I was legitimately scared. I, I've got a new neighbor, um, and they were hanging paintings for some reason at like 11 p.m. while I was watching Ghost Watch, and just like every time the hammer would hit at random intervals, it just like absolutely got a jump scare out of me. Uh. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, oh no, Pipes is here. Uh, amazing. But what one thing I do want to talk about is so what this movie does with special effects 
anyone can do with a weekend's worth of free time, YouTube tutorials, and a quick trip to your local like costume shop or Halloween store. Like, like there's nothing special effects wise going on here that would break a budget or be out of reach of even the most like low to no budget indie filmmaking. Like this is this is the BBC and their prime, which I mean, that is synonymous with uh, discount filmmaking. And what they do with that basic and affordable level of special effects is just absolutely breathtaking. I, I actually think there's one more element to bring up in how this all works together, which is the sound design. Mm, Th- yeah. This has incredible sound design. Um, uh, it's, it's jarring. It's horrible. Um, boy, if, if you like the noise of really angry cats, you're in for a treat. It's that non-visual aspect which makes the, the visuals, which are not terribly impressive or complicated, much more effective. Absolutely. This, this is all coming together. And just the, the choice of uh, cats just yowling, is, is that there's something primal about the way that sound hits and how they've positioned the visuals. And just, I think one of the things that we need to talk about if we're talking about the, the formalism and the special effects here is the fact that this is, by today's standard, an incredibly low resolution image. Um, the, you know, like this was filmed to be put on the BBC and their prime, right? Like this is not 4K Ultra HD compatible. Um, you're, you're not upscaling Ghostwatch to 8K. And if you do upscale Ghostwatch to 8K, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, it'll look awful. And I think this, this, this speaks to something I wanted to talk about for a bit here. And that's like, how does the media of our art transform what that art is then capable of? Uh, in found footage, because Ghostwatch is found footage, and I think that is a great field to have this conversation in, because found footage necessarily has to be kind of bad. Mm-hmm. And when I say bad here, I mean like bad using the contemporary capitalistic teleology of like constantly chasing the new highest resolution possible or you know, like whatever's popular in CG special effects tomorrow, you know, whatever tomorrow's ray tracing is going to be. Yeah, I mean, we've said this before, but absolute representational fidelity is the death of horror. Like, it's it, mm-hmm. it absolutely kills tension. Um, and it's not a surprise that these are, like, this is like, uh, this mid-90s technology gives you... Uh, a huge amount of noise and grain in images. And what that makes you do as an audience member is actually kind of try and lean in and try and like spot, Mm -hmm. Oh, what are they looking at? You get, it's, it's an incredibly simple thing, but it really does draw you in as a viewer. And um, I think this is such an important thing. And maybe why I, I kind of find found this more effective than a lot of other found footage is because that historical aspect of like, Things look grainy, things are unclear, signals drop, like there's static, there's noise. All of that doesn't make the film less scary. That's actually a vital part of what makes it scary in the first place. Absolutely. And I think there are kind of two other things I want to talk about in the same topic here. And that's this is pre-digital, right? Like this is before digital filmmaking becomes the status quo. 
And so like digital filmmaking has a different relationship to grain and artifacts, right? Digital filmmaking is, you know, the, the equivalents here aren't like pops and streaks on the film reel. They're uh, glitches and things like that. Mm. There's, there's something almost less enchanting about those glitches. It's, it's almost like more obnoxious to try and hide a ghost behind a glitched image than it is to hide a ghost inside of a damaged film reel. And that, that's one of my favorite sequences in this movie. Um, so Pipes is the name of the poltergeist that's haunting this family. One of the conceits of Ghost Watch is that people are calling in and talking about what they're seeing on screen and things like that. And they start getting a flood of calls telling them that they've seen this haunting figure in, in the little girl's bedroom um, during an earlier shot when they were interviewing the two little girls who live in this house with their mother. Um, and during the first run through of that shot, when it's live, um, we, you know, like if, if you're a eagle eyed viewer, you will see the ghost of pipes in the cor- standing in the corner of the room, just motionless. But when they go back to review the footage, there's, there, there's these kind of like streaks on the film that look vaguely like the outline of a man, you know, and like, that is so brilliant and clever and it can only be done with film. And I, I think it, that meshes with the other two kind of formal modes of filmmaking that are happening here. One, uh, you're completely right. That is a fa- it, this is a found footage film, but also this is documentary television. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think those those two things actually completely reinforce what you're saying. Right, the whole point of documentaries is we're going to get at the truth. Uh, we're going to use all of our most sophisticated equipment, but the whole point is the limitations of that equipment mean that the truth always escapes or supersedes whatever our interpretation might be. Yeah, like in our contemporary moment, we've managed to trick ourselves into believing that digital filmmaking creates a realistic fidelity. It somehow more honestly portrays the world around us and that film uh, uh, doesn't. Film, film requires some necessary and inherent construction Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that leads into the success of a lot of found footage movies being shot on film or having a relationship to film, right? Like even the VHS franchise that isn't always shot on VHS. Um, it's still titled after like one of the most iconic manifestations of film and celluloid reproduction. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And I think the 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 choice of medium is so important and the choice of not only just the, the the media that's being used but the form of the media right so it's important that this is a bbc documentary which is something that the bbc have mm-hmm. always had a great reputation for uh it is like uh, uh the 90s were the kind of emergence of this um live call-in show format this kind of like uh, we'll talk about who hosts the show in a little bit, but like, <laughs> but like all of these kind of formal elements kind of just mesh so perfectly to, to, to produce this. So I think this, this, this carries us on nicely to our next topic. Would you like to discuss the Beeb? Uh, we should talk about the BBC. Yes, we should talk about the BBC. Um, what would you, what, where would you like to begin? Well, I think I think because we're talking about Ghost Watch, a good place would be to discuss the kind of Ghost Watch aftermath for the BBC. Uh, yes. Okay. So, um, 
The BBC is a publicly owned and funded national broadcaster with a government, uh, with a royal charter. Its function, according to its founding documents, um, are um, inf to, to inform, educate and entertain. Uh, st it starts in 1920 um, as uh, predominantly as a radio broadcaster. And it, it, it kind of has this uh, reputation for being very trustworthy. BBC News is still one of the most visited news websites in the entire world. Um, and this show got them into so much trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think the specifics around this incident get pretty interesting. Um, because one, one of the things that's worth noting is at no point does Ghostwatch hide the fact that it's fake. You know, the, the opening title card of Ghostwatch is a written by credit. Uh, yeah. You know, um, and then if you if um, during the live broadcast of Ghostwatch, if you were to call into the BBC, the first thing you heard on on the other end of that phone call line is someone telling you that this is a fake program. Um, so they weren't they weren't hiding at all. But one thing that and, uh, you know, maybe maybe our listeners are perhaps a bit young and they don't remember what a television used to be. But like you couldn't rewind back to the start of a live program. <laughs> so most people who watched this live picked it up in media res, picked it up while it was going. So they missed that title credit. Most people also didn't call in. So they didn't know it was fake when it was happening. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, thousands of people called thinking it was real. Um, there were huge amounts of complaints. Um, at the time, mass, you know, there, there weren't, uh, 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 hundreds of t television channels. So programs on the BBC got millions of viewers at the same time and hundreds of thousands of people complained mm -hmm. and called in thinking that what they were seeing was real. It was very much like um, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds. Um, what happened afterwards was was even more interesting. So it was actually pretty controversial. There was... Um, uh, cases or reported cases of teenagers particularly being very traumatized by this. Um, mm -hmm. The British Medical Journal put out a paper exploring um, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder in children that watched um, the broadcast, which I think is, it makes it one of the first, one of the first um, television films to be accused of uh, inducing post-traumatic stress, even though in the show, the host says, this is past the watershed. Your children should go to bed. What <laughs> <laughs> um, wh What do you think about its kind of reception? I, I think this is really interesting, right? Like, I, I think this positioning of Ghostwatch as being uniquely traumatic, I, I think is really important for us to explore and pick through. And I think the first, the first stop and our ghost watch trauma train is the natural first stop. And that's we today live in a world where you could uh, spin the wheel of grotesqueries and find whatever you want. You know, like thanks, thanks to the internet, like uh, the, the, the kind of like uh, dark shadow of the human mind has been just completely unchained and now has its own Twitch account. <laughs> and like, yeah, basically. So, and, but, but, to an extent, this has always been true about human media. You know, like like we've always just kind of created these 
monstrosities woven from the fabric of our own shadow. And how how far does Ghost Watch depart from other programming on the BBC? You know, like like what about this makes it so uniquely over the edge? Is it the fact that if you missed that title card, if you let your kids stay up and watch this, they might have thought it was a real thing happening in the real world. Is is that the line that got crossed here? Um, because then that that begs the question of like, what about real the reporting of real world violence? You know, like what about the the reporting of a real world knife crime or something to keep this in the context of England? Like Ghost Watch, I think one of its most challenging and enduring aspects is it's directly calling the stuff into question by the nature of what it was. I think I think this raises a super interesting question. It actually makes me think of um, an act of killing, which we covered a little while ago. Mm. And me and you both found that film very like very uh, impactful. Like that got to us, uh, and it didn't get to us because it was real. Because just as you say, what about all of the other various horrific things that happen around the world? It got to us because it was this um, mix of an imaginative engagement through a medium that brings you kind of makes things more real than real, right? It wasn't that people thought this was real. It was because it was presented as something that was true. Yes. Even Mm -hmm. though it was fake, you know, it wasn't real. It was more real than real. It wasn't true. It was more true than true. Absolutely. Like if you, if you think about the context of, of this kind of reality greater than reality, right? Um, to, to quote Rob Zombie, more human than human. <laughs> but this kind of, this kind of hyper-reality that emerges with things like Ghost Watch, the biggest contrast, and, and the act of killing as well, but like the biggest contrast here, and we talked about this a lot in the act of killing episode, is that like when the news reports on a stabbing or a shooting, it's very clinical, Right. It'll be it'll be something like two people were stabbed in an apparent mugging on X Street at 11 p.m. Thursday night or something like that. That is that's just the dry facts of a situation. Uh, A ghost watch is not a, a movie about a haunting happening on live TV. It's a movie about a single mother living in a council house with her two daughters and their struggle to deal with these kind of paranormal phenomena that are just so far above them. And that gives us so much more space to connect to this. It makes it so much more immediate. It makes it so much more real than, than a kind of dry, factual reading of an actual real-world atrocity. Yes. I think that's what makes this so powerful. That's what made it so um, kind of shocking at the time. And of course, um, it helped that, like, the the people in it were actors, but they weren't really acting. Sarah Green, uh, Michael Parkinson, and Craig Charles were just doing their jobs. Like, yeah, a, a lot of the actors were people you would have seen on the BBC doing news programs. Um, as I, I was talking to you about this before we started recording, and we were trying to figure out the kind of American American equivalent to Michael Parkinson in this. Um, so Michael Parkinson, for people who don't know, was uh, an English broadcast journalist and talk show host. And in the uh, early uh, 90s, he was like the face of the BBC, right? 
uh, arguably one of the most famous people on television in Britain. Um, so really the only thing that we, I, we could come up with that would come close to it would be like in his prime, Larry King is, is, mm-hmm. is, is doing a documentary about supernatural experiences. And you kind of get why as soon as you see Parkinson's face, people watching it at the time would go, Oh, well it must be real if they've got Michael doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is like, that is just kind of, Oh, I, I love that aspect of this. The fact that they just chose real world people to be themselves and still try and act their way through it. Like every, everything about this feels like the, the, the kind of precision engineering of, of a piece of horror that only happens through that like absolutely magical combination of technical limitations, necessity, and just a, like a gifted insight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it and the other thing is that it follows the conventions not of a horror film. It follows the conventions of mm-hmm. like a Friday night documentary call-in show. Oh yeah, right. Which is another thing. That, like, so you you've got Parkinson talking to the parapsychologist. Thing as well. We'll stop you there. We'll go to the phones. And like, so it plays out. Obviously, the last fifteen minutes, which are really really scary. Um, uh, are properly effective. They that is the horror the horror movie section, but the rest of it plays out in the conventions that you would be accustomed to seeing as being kind of factually true. And and this this program also directly leans into your expectations for what would happen in a ghost hunting program. Uh, around the midpoint of the movie, we find out that one of the uh, two young daughters are faking some of the banging sounds that the pipes poltergeist is creating. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, like, oh, there's the there's the red herring right in the middle of the movie that oh the kids are the kids are faking it. They're doing it for attention, whatever. And um, Michael Parkinson like is like, oh, okay, that's what's going on here. Like, it's it's faked. What do you make of that paranormal psychologist doctor lady? Because they had just interviewed like a skeptic doctor of psychiatry earlier who was talking about kids faking things and mental diagnoses and stuff like that. And like it is it is just so well timed to play in to everything you expect all the way up until like the pure chaos of, of the kind of the, the end of the third act. Um, and it all it just works so seamlessly together. Um should we should we exit the formalist zone and uh, start the next section of the show, our discourse watch? Yes, yes. But before we before we go there, I need to uh, make some changes to my witchboard. I mean, switchboard. Uh, that was the best line in the movie for me because <laughs> <laughs> that is. I, I heard that and I was like, oh my god, it's the it's the it's for the introduction. It's all one hundred and some some episodes of the show. And I was like so happy to hear that little horror dad joke. And if you like hearing horror dad jokes, please consider subscribing to the Horror Vanguard Patreon page. You'll get early access to episodes and an exclusive bonus episode once a month if you want more horror dad jokes. I'm sorry, I'm kind of fevered right now, so the Patreon pitch is quickly falling apart. Let's go to the discourse. <laughs> Cut, cut, cut to the phones. Cut to the callers. Uh, we, Cam- camera pen away. We have done this for three years. We are still genuinely terrible at promoting ourselves. Um, but yes, let's talk. This time, this time I get a pass, though. This time, this time it's the bacteria's fault. <laughs> uh, 
Should we? If, if ever anything goes wrong on this show, it's bacteria. Yep, absolutely. When in doubt, blame the bacteria. You know what? Let's let's start with our poltergeist. Let's start with the 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 monster in the glory hole of this house. Um, let I did, I, okay, so I just, we just had to pump the brakes right there really quickly because I didn't want to be the one to make that joke. So I'm so glad you <laughs> you broke the seal. Uh, just really quickly. Why is the ghost haunting a glory hole? And specifically, <laughs> what is a glory hole? Um, well, in the context of this film, uh, it refers to a, a small uh, small cupboard uh, under the stairs of the house. Um, in between in between the uh, uh, in between the lounge and kitchen, there is there's the staircase going up, and there's the, then there is a small cupboard under the stairs, which they decide. For reasons which elude me, they decide to refer to throughout as a glory hole. Yes, which a little incongruous now, some 30 years in the future. I don't know if they expected uh, things to zig instead of zag for for that language. But um, yeah, it's a a little cupboard under the stairs, exactly uh, like where the... Uh, the heroes of the Harry Potter movies attempted to hide away the cursed child from the world. Uh, so it's the exact same place where Pipes the Phantasm lives. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so should we talk about Pipes? Should we talk about Pipes the Phantasm? Um, Let's do it. What are your What are your thoughts on on how this unfolds? On on what we find out about our dangerous poltergeist? So I find I find there's a lot of stuff around, uh, going on here that I think is like so interesting with Pipes as a character and as a haunting um it, it's it's kind of it's kind of evolving as you're, you're like poltergeist slash exorcist movie is going to evolve so that it's it's hitting all of those beats it's doing them really well um it, a lot of it is really subtle and really weird too and i think a lot of that is what allows us to or allowed me as an audience member to stay so keyed in without immediately coding this as a poltergeist movie or a possession movie. Um, although both of those things happen, right? Like we get this one sequence where like pipes creates like a pool of ectoplasm in the carpet. And like our, our news anchors are trying to like siphon some up with a little um, air puffer that you would have in your like photography kit. And like, like that's like, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was that stuff that like, like the mechanical elements of the haunting itself kept me going all the way through to the end where it becomes like this national phantasm, which I think metaphorically we're about to get into because the, the thing about pipes is that, so here are uh, two lines about pipes that we learn. We don't, we don't learn very much about pipes as character who pipes was in the land of the living until the end of the movie where uh, pipes former, like asylum caretaker calls in to, to let us know the gory truth. Um, and we learned two main things about pipes uh, and that he started to wear dresses and that he believed there was a woman inside of him telling him what to do. Uh, and just, just really quickly at the end of the movie pipes becomes a phantom that haunts all of England and, and reaps its destruction. 
I yeah. Um, I, I mean, let's let's just be yeah. Let's just be as as kind of clear as possible. Um, one of the very worst things about uh, English media culture for like the last I don't God knows how many years is its virulent like uh, uh, transphobia and and hatred towards trans people. Like yeah. to the point where I have multiple American friends who tell me that as weird and terrible as the American media is, British journalism, particularly the the, the transphobia of British journalism, even makes Americans go, "What's going on?" Yeah, and I think you know we were talking earlier about the BBC's great reputation for their coverage and their reporting, but like in in the last like several years even even they've just like absolutely sunk themselves by committing to like this horrible fucking transphobia that's coming out of england uh yes and this is where we see the roots of it you can see like uh you can see it here in this in this sort of like oh isn't this isn't this terrifying that this there there was this uh and i i just think it's gross i just think it's gross and i think uh, the the caller uh, J.K. Rowling, uh, who tells the uh, <laughs> that is a jo- for, for legal purposes that is a joke that is that is not true um, allegedly allegedly you, you you just you you just mean uh, just kidding Rowling our 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 stock joke character here on the podcast uh, like this this idea of being like oh isn't it horrifying started to wear dresses thought there was a woman inside him telling him, telling him what to do um, is is ties into some horrible, long-standing, deeply regressive attitudes towards gender non-conforming and trans people. Um, and yeah, um, it, it is... The way the British, British kind of popular discourse talks about, talks about trans people is just awful and utterly repugnant. Um, although, thankfully, there are uh, several high-profile high trans writers and journalists and broadcasters uh, who do excellent work. Uh, Sean Fay uh is amazing and they have a new book uh on uh coming out soon i think it's called the transgender issue uh which is um an attempt to kind of like shift the discourse particularly in the uk but but what did you think about that as as someone because for me watching it i was like uh oh that that feels kind of horribly familiar to how british media talk about uh trans and trans and gender non-conforming people but for someone who's not from the UK, what what did you think about that? So to to invoke Bong Joon Ho for a second, um, I might not be from the UK, but we all do live in a country called capitalism, um, and and because of that, uh, I am I am well aware of English media. Also because I know you and we're good friends, <laughs> and I lived there for a while. All all of that comes together. So when when I saw that pop up, I was like, oh, this started way earlier than I thought it did. Um, was my it was my big reaction to the reveal that Pipes went insane when he was alive, partly because of cross-dressing and this kind of some some kind of trans identity or genderqueer identity. I I was like, oh, this is this mess goes deeper deeper than I thought in England. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, this this kind of trans coding of, of is it's very it's there are deep historical roots that have to be kind of unpicked here one thing 
one thing that I do think is interesting, right? Like, so, so I thought about like, you know, like the classic academic responses. Okay, so how do we queer pipes? Right. Like how do we, how do we, how do we do a Babadook, but for pipes, mm-hmm. right. Yep, yep. And, and like, like bring, bring pipes back on the team. And you know, like, so, so in the end of the movie, right. It, it turns out what happened, what's been happening is that because they've been broadcasting live across the entire country and there's millions of viewers, what they've done is they've accidentally created the largest seance in human history and, and every in the entire country of England. Um, and I think also Wales, I think we had a Welsh caller at one point. Um, but like the, the entire UK is now consumed by pipes, you know, by, by the, by the end of this pipes has taken over England essentially, right? Pipes has been powered up by, by millions of people in a seance. It's, it's the biggest paranormal event possible. Right. And, and pipes is genderqueer, you know? So we, we have, we have like to, to, I guess to, to kind of invoke a Marxist phrase here, like pipes is the specter haunting england that is that's a really good way of thinking about it um that's a really i uh, that honestly hadn't occurred to me and i think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it of of this possibility of uh finding in 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 the the figure of pipes there's a kind of uh, uh de- deconstruction terrifying haunting of not just the kind of family, but of like English national identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. And I think Pipes is just kind of naturally aligned with all of these other queer coded monsters and lavender villains and all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think I think Pipes Pipes is right at home in in the pantheon here. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. So uh, cr- critical solidarity to Pipes as he haunts the BBC until they are no longer transphobic. <laughs> uh, where next? <laughs> where, so that, where? Was, that, that was really heavy. That, that, that got heavy for a bit. And I think we needed to because of the current state of British media broadly and what Pipes, you know, represents now in, in this contemporary context. But there, there's some other stuff going on here, and those are serial killers. So to lighten things up, I want to talk about serial killers on the TV. Let's let's do it. <laughs> so you're 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 from you're you're from the Queen's uh, enchanted islands of whimsy and magic. Um, how, how often are serial killers turned into uh, fun and lovable characters on your television programming? How many how many serial killers has the has Doctor Who been friends with throughout the years? Um, that that doesn't happen very often. Uh, almost, in fact, I'm going to say never. And this this I think is something that's really interesting as kind of a point of comparative analysis, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's very fair to say that in England specifically, there is a massive cultural taboo against kind of portraying and discussing and engaging with the popular figure of the serial killer. Um, it, it is deeply tabooed, right? Even to the point where like a serial killing that happened 50 years ago is still something you don't talk about. Whereas here in America, I would like to point our attention to uh season 14 of supernatural in the episodes lebanon and mariah and season 15 with the episodes back into the future raising hell and the rupture 
uh, which features one of Supernatural's most lovable and funny reoccurring characters, John Wayne Gacy, as his alter ego, Pogo the Clown. What? What? Uh, and then that's that's not that's not a typo. That's not uh, an alternate. It's it's literally John Wayne Gacy's ghost comes back from hell and is a reoccurring fan favorite character in Supernatural, and he appears as Pogo the Clown, his clown alter ego. <laughs> So we, what we have here, uh, we have England, uh, the country that created the United States by sending its most deranged citizens across the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and, and the United States, who, who now transforms our serial killers into uh, uh, those uh, laughable foils of villains constantly trying to get those Winchester brothers. Uh, why do you think this difference emerges? Um, I have no idea <laughs> but part part of it i i think it has to be tied in to, to the american approach to violence more broadly mm-hmm. like, like culturally speaking america is not squeamish about violence the certain types of violence sure we are we are very not into um but like just like look at american television programming it is all cop procedural shows that are just doing saw constantly you know, like one of the longest running shows in the States is called uh, uh, Criminal Minds. It's about people who are irrevocably insane because their minds are broken and now they have to be serial killers. That's the that's the show. You know, so like that that figure of the serial killer, that that kind of violence, right, that that level of killing is, I think, something that American media is not. For, for better or for worse, and there's tons of different ways we can approach this um, to just to kind of like put a pin in it, like American media just dives straight in. I think that's I I think this is this is really interesting because it's about the kinds of like crime or or um, let's let's say kind of like social non-compliance that gets talked about because um, mm-hmm. you, you're completely right that like um Serial killers don't get talked about, but like the scandal that happened in that house like 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that's something that will always get talked about mm-hmm. in this country. That's so, yeah. that's super interesting. It's just that's just a really interesting kind of cultural difference between the UK and the States. And I think it's it's one of the things that made Ghost Watch so controversial because Ghost Watch name drops at least one real world serial killer um albeit it happened you know a long time before ghost watch became a program but nevertheless like it still kind of skirts this british cultural taboo should we also talk about another important aspect of british culture another i'm i'm so afraid of what you're gonna say but yeah let's go (laughs) let's talk should we talk about most haunted Oh, here we go. Let's let let us talk about uh, ghost TV shows. Ghost TV. Let's talk about like because in Britain, the 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 big, a big daddy of them all is a show called Most Haunted, or um, as it was originally known, Most Haunted with Yvette Fielding and Derek Akora. Um, it ran for something like twenty seasons. It had spinoffs in so many different countries. Uh, it's, it's just incredible. It, it, it involves a host, a parapsychologist and a medium or psychic 
going to various haunted locations to have kind of like ha- haunted experiences. Uh, Hell yeah. How would you explain this? Um so so the thing the thing about most haunted that I've always found endearing is that it's it's a much more honest in a show and it's kind of presentation there's there's something a little bit and this is probably owing to to the general candor of british television more broadly is is it's a little bit more somber in certain respects than american television um because we have ghost hunters um which you know like the, the, the these two titles alone uh speak volumes of difference um but but in most haunted it's it's very like I won't go as far as to say twee, but it is definitely British. Um, <laughs> c- contrast that with, uh, you know, like American ghost hunting shows where it's like a bunch of bros chugging wild turkey trying to pick a fight with the ghost of John Wilkes Booth. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Co-ghost and producer Ash here. I'd like to issue a correction for today's episode. The program I was referring to was not, in fact, Ghost Hunters, but was actually an episode of Ghost Lab entitled John Wilkes Booth, which aired November 10th, 2009. Thank you for bearing with me. And Pogo the Clown is, is, a, is, a, is now a popular, reoccurring, low-tier villain in a TV show. Like, like there is a madness here. <laughs> it, is, it is the... That is the most American thing... I have ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> and it's just deeply embarrassing that that is a true statement. <laughs> but so let's let's untangle ghost hunting shows. Um you know, we this is this is a uh, pun intended the most haunted discourse. So if you've made it to this part of the episode, um I want you to get your EVP recording devices out. I, I want you to turn on your thermal night vision cameras. Um, let's see if we could detect any electromagnetic pulses too. While we're here, we're going to be looking for ghosts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Um, so, so what do you what do you make then of what are what what are what is this show? What what are what is this phenomenon where we have these ghost hunting TV shows? Well, here's the thing, right? These are these are not even. These are obviously fake. These are these are this is the thing that is like really fascinating to me, which is like these are obviously not even not real or not like not recording genuine. Like they are they are obviously not real. <laughs> like they don't even they there is no it's like they're going through the motions, but like the cur- the stage curtain has full, fallen down and you can see that there's nothing back there. Um and and I I guess I guess I'm sort of wondering like, is is that part of the appeal? Well, was so one one thing that I, I want to contrast Ghost Watch with is the Zach Baggins live special with the Dybbuk box. Okay. Uh, so so Zach Baggins, famous American ghost hunter and kind of a bro, um, did did a live special where he acquired this item called the Dybbuk box. And it was it was this magic box that had like the most evil possible demon sealed inside of it, um, and the the episode was just, it was a live episode, and it is just this glorious failure of <laughs> of no tension, and it just it just lays the show bare completely, and how much 
ghost hunters only exist because of post-production and editing Mm -hmm. like you you've got you've got like this whole sequence where like zach baggins can't figure out how to use a flashlight um and then you've got like he he hires some some rabbi that can like do an exorcism on the dybbuk box and then like I, i guess they didn't chat beforehand because the rabbi literally says something to the effect of um, I'm sure. Th- I'm sure this isn't going to go great with your script, but like, I don't really believe in demons, so ah. shrug. <laughs> and then, like, uh, immediately, Zach Baggins and crew are scrambling to to save the episode. And they're like, "We have to go. This place is too evil. We have to seal it off immediately." And 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 like, it, it just falls apart entirely. And oh, deep breaths, deep breaths. So we've got we've got the situation where we have. A fake haunting that isn't pretending to be real and fake hauntings that are pretending to be real competing for the same space. Yes. And I think is it also part of the appeal is that they they share a same kind of formal structure. So uh, there is a kind of reassuring continuity to their patterns, right? Even if you know it's not mm-hmm. real, you can still get the kind of little, you know, it scratches the right part of our brain when we see the the medium or the 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 gym bro uh, yelling at the go- <laughs> ghost of John Wilkes Booth. Like, even though we know it's not real, right? It, it has the same kind of like narrative catharsis. A- a- absolutely. And I think there's also something worth untangling here about this kind of you know, aftermath of the enlightenment, right? This kind of struggling inside of this kind of scientist. Oh my God, brain, come on, buddy. <laughs> Get those bacteria out of there. We got talking to do. Um, so, so there's this kind of like scientific positivism that that emerges in ghost hunting shows, right? Because like, you sure, you got some mediums and stuff, but the meat of the show is catching a ghost voice on an EVP, Right. Or like 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 filming the the spectral energy of a ghost with a night vision camera. Mm-hmm. Right. It's 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 a it's a not just a capturing of the dead, but it's a recapturing of the dead. It's a way of reinscribing uh, uh, even, even the most far flung fields of, of experience into this kind of scientific positivism. Uh, yes, exactly. And it's super it's super interesting that like you get more and more sophisticated equipment, right? Your technology gets even more and more uh, advanced, capable, but like always the ghost will elude, right? It's quite Deridian in a way, right? Mm-hmm. There is, <laughs> the ghost, it always slips beyond positivistic ex- inscription into technology. You know, the ghost, the ghost is not in the machine because the machine can never completely contain the ghost in the first place. Yeah, and I, I think that also flows back in the same direction, or in, in the reverse direction, rather, where, where these, these shows are in part, you know, as I suggest, this way of kind of reinscribing the spiritual into our world of contemporary technology, right? Like, what's, what's the most hack response for, like, every found footage? And it's, well, everybody's always got cameras, and we're always filming all the time forever now anyway. Mm-hmm. So if, if if Bigfoot was real, if aliens were real, if ghosts were real, we'd be like TikToking with them now. But I think but I think another part of this is is it's a way to kind of bring our technological existence back into the realm of the spiritual. It's it's a way to bridge 
this gap and you can walk down it in both directions. Yes, absolutely. The whole point is that, like, what is technology if not an attempt to completely expunge the ghost, right? To get rid of all mm. un uncertainty, to map the world and to have it known and recorded and static. But, like, the whole that's the whole point. That The whole point of the ghost is that they... They are uh, the the kind of dialectical negation of technological positivism. Absolutely, like like no matter how far technology reaches, there is no catching this. Uh, this is this is like so one of the cutest things in Ghost Watch is that they've got like the the uh, ghost hunter tech expert um, outside in the BBC van with the uh, anchor guy wearing a Chicago Bears jacket. By the way, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, that was that was just like I was like oh my god this is really happening and it's happening right now <laughs> sitting here in Chicago Illinois and this guy's got a Bears jacket on in this '90s BBC TV show. <laughs> um, so I was not was not psychically prepared for that, but you know they're out there they're talking with the with the guy and he's like oh we've got these like we've got the latest in night vision ghost catching technologies. And like it's just like it's been decades, and it's still the same song. Now, now we have devices where ghosts can text you. Yep. Um, so you can text with ghosts, which is way <laughs> not manipulatable in post production in the slightest. That's that's the pillar yep. of honesty is texting a ghost. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Everybody knows that 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 that's how it works. And it's just this is this is an interesting place we find ourselves in right because this is the first we're we're in the first wave of human history where technology has truly reached a point that it can infest the spiritual in the way that it has and these ghost hunting programs are kind of like the most active engagement with the kind of uh this ontology, right? This way of knowing spirituality in the most broad sense of that term. In the forefront of this discussion is most haunted and ghost hunters. Yes, it's... I'm sorry, it, I, I would like to apologize to Derrida really quickly. <laughs> worse things have happened to Derrida than, than us uh, appropriating... <laughs> appropriating uh, Derrida, Derridian hauntology to explain the appeal of most haunted with Derek Akora, um, which is never something I thought we would be doing on this podcast. <laughs> oh yeah, I just love how like every two or three episodes we're like, wait, I never thought we would be here. <laughs> um, shall we? Shall we start wrapping things up? I realize that we've gone for like over an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think the last thing, the last thing to talk about is kind of theories of scientific knowledge. How do we know what we know and how do we arrive at that knowing? As it's presented in the BBC made-for-TV mockumentary Ghost Watch. What are your thoughts? Well, there are two two schools of thought, right? So we have our um uh we have our parapsychologist Dr. Lynn Pasco, um who is our in-studio expert. And then there is um, a uh, external New York skeptic whose name escapes me for a second. Who's like, this is all rubbish. Parapsychology is an embarrassment. Uh, when it turns out that one of the children has been banging on the pipes to make the noise, he's like, well, there you go. Um, but the debate that they have, they have, the, have this kind of argument uh, where Lynn says, 
that there are some things that can't be demonstrated in a lab. You've got to get out of the lab and into real life, um, which uh, is a pretty good point, actually, um, because this kind of like what we might call a naive or kind of crude positivism tends to abstract phenomena away from their circumstances and conditions. Um, so I, I actually thought that was a super interesting moment. What, what about you? I, I had the exact same thought when they were having that, that, that conversation. Uh, so after, after they had that interview um, between our parapsychologist and the um, psychiatrist from New York who's trying to deny everything, the, the, host, the host of our program... It's like, well, there we have it. Uh, case, wrap it, print, we're ready to go. And of course, our parapsychologist is really defensive. And she starts saying, like, like uh, she says, you have a belief system too. Your belief system is blanket denial because you're afraid to face it. And she refers to him as the last of the materialists. Which which I, I find that, like, out of nowhere, this movie just has, like, super Saiyan discourse that is extremely relevant <laughs> to our interests. And I love it to death for it. And this, this, this moment, I think, is really, it's really compelling, right? Because we, it's exactly what you're talking about, right? This crude uh, positivism, this desire to reduce all known phenomena down to this granular statistic and measurable detail. And we've seen a huge, part of the huge failure of that way of looking at the world is what we're living through right now. Like we, we live in a moment where our economic system is entirely controlled by that worldview. Like that ontology is the framework from which our entire global economic system emerges. And like if the last year has shown us anything, it's that like just on time logistics is the single most frail thing out there. Yeah. Oh, well, it all worked in the simulation. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know it worked in the lab. You know what's the pro? Like sometimes, sometimes uh, things are more complicated, stranger, weirder than they may than they might be in the strictly con controlled conditions of a lab experiment. Absolutely, and in and in like, and in some weird magical way. All of these ghost hunting shows are attempting to grapple with that. I, I think they reflect this kind of collective unconscious recognition that the dominant ontological framework of our society that is nothing more than this kind of childish, child, sorry, the bacteria don't want me to podcast today, <laughs> this kind of childish positivism, right? This naive view that you could somehow like you know, generate an algorithm that just fixes everything, right? Like that, that the, these programs are in a way testing the boundary of that. And they're kind of, I think one thing that they might be suggesting is that that line of thinking, mm -hmm. that's more supernatural than trying to like make a ghost talk to you through an app on your iPhone. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and it shows what I think is really good about Ghostwatch is that it shows the ways in which if you scaling up technology doesn't solve the problem, right? Because the whole point right at the end is we just did we just did a nationwide seance with the best uh, you know, the 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 best available technology that's gonna allow this uh, poltergeist free roam across the entire uh, country. So it's like this the the attempt for complete epistemic closure 
is always doomed to fail. Ab- absolutely. And, and I think speaking of the phrase doomed to fail, the, the last thing that we need to talk about is what, what is going on with council housing becoming a new theme for our show? Right? We suddenly turned into a housing podcast, which is, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> Welcome to architectural horror movie Van <laughs> so what do you what do you what do you make of it because that's like that's like a, a a fundamental thing that we've seen pop up that that was in his house it's appearing here again in ghost watch we, we've talked about it several times throughout the course of the show um one of my favorite episodes the black tower was kind of heavily about this idea and and, and here it is again popping up in ghost watch well what i think is like housing is a kind of shared problem now right and mm-hmm. the gothic always works in if you are in a kind of claustrophobic claustrophobic space you know that's what it depends on it depends upon like mausoleums and graves and houses that you can't get out of because we have this incredibly tense relationship to housing housing is necessary it's needed but you know and if you mm-hmm. know the whole thing is like get the kids out of the house and it's like no why because they probably don't have anywhere else to go what what about you what do you think well they they run directly into that right because like the so the mother of these two kids is, is talking about how like you know she went to the council and she was like hey i need a new home like the, 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 this, there's some bad stuff going on here i need to get my kids out and they were like lady you're crazy there's no such things as poltergeists there's no no such thing as ghosts. Computer says no. Yeah, computer says no. That's not that's not proper positivism. And she was sentenced to the BBC re-education chamber, <laughs> where Doctor Who instructs her on the proper nature of being twee. And like, so, so we 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 have that in here, right? This isn't a home for her. This is like a last resort prison, right? She is unable to change. This is this is the thing that pops up over and over and over again in horror, right? Like, why don't they just move? Well, like, how hard is it to move? You can't afford a new place, right? And the cost, moving costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It also costs time, mm-hmm. right? Like, like, if you're working for your money, moving is a logistical and an expensive nightmare, and so, like, literally, this family just does not have that as an option. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This is this isn't this isn't Narnia where you can send your kids to live with your weird rich uncle who owns an estate in the countryside. Like, this is proper working class life. Um. Yeah, and it's 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 shared as well, right? It's a shared condition, right? Hmm. So many people exist in kind of a housing insecurity, housing precarity. Uh, so this idea of like, there's something you need, but you you may also have to run away from it. It may it is such an interesting strand to develop in horror. Absolutely. So do you, do you have any any parting thoughts for Ghost Watch as uh, we change the channel? It, it's really great. It's on it's on archive.org. Um, if you've never seen it, it is uh, it's maybe one of the most effective kind of mockumentary found footage horror films I've seen um, ever. Um, what about you? 
I mean, it, it's up there with the VHS franchise and WNUF Halloween special for me. Like this is this is how you should do found footage horror. It's just incredible, and the 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 ideas that it winds up invoking and engaging with, right? Like challenging this kind of crude positivism we live under. You know, like like bringing like the, this kind of like these issues around trans politics and queer liberation in England to bear, especially so early compared to contemporary conversations and to, to kind of round the whole thing out with a discussion on council housing. I think there's just like so much in this movie to, to talk about. And these are great. These are great places where you, the audience can pick up this conversation. If you're playing the home game right now. Uh, Absolutely. Should we ask our questions of the audience? Scientists of all ages. Who? What? Brilliant. Gee whiz. Just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I will. I'll go first. I'll, I'll, I'll jump. I'll jump on this one. So, so my questions to you, the audience, would be: What do you think of pipes? Pipes, pipes are phantasm, and what we learn of his his past and his history. How do you think that works, especially in a contemporary media landscape that's that's ruled by figures such as uh, Just Kidding Rowling, uh, the made-up HV character that does not represent a real-life person in the slightest? <laughs> uh, my, my, my second question to you would be, um, what are other, where are other places that you see this kind of tension, right? Because we live in a world that's like hyper-optimized technological efficiency is the name of the game. You know, so, so much of our, our experience under capitalism is ruled by, by algorithms and this kind of, this idea of a scientific achievable perfection. Um, outside of the world of ghost hunting reality shows and BBC mockumentaries from 30 years ago, where else do you find tension uh, over that issue appearing? Oh, excellent. Excellent question. Um, I think I would ask what other people think about why ghost hunting shows are so popular. And secondly, what makes found footage so effective? Are we onto something when we talk about how um, it, its reality is dependent upon its apparent fictionality? Or is there something else going on, a different aspect to this? Um, but as always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. Um, and uh, that's the end of our show. <laughs> fee fi fo fum Subscribe to the HV Patreon. Uh, okay, that's what we go out on. That's what we go out on. <laughs> Oh, try to stay spooky, everyone. And if you get a cold, make sure to stay hydrated and get a lot of bed rest. Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 